Well, welcome. This is episode 75. Who would have thought we'd have got so far to the professor and the hack? I am the hack. I love saying that sort of. Hugh Remington and with me is the professor, of course, Peter Van Onsen. And so good to talk to you as always, Peter. G'day, Hugh. We're aging fast. We're aging fast and, and at a distance. We're getting old apart, uh, PVO, you and I, because I remain in the US. He's still younger than Joe Biden. Older than Donald Trump now, but younger than Joe Biden. You know, it's funny you should say that because I was watching um, Barack Obama do a rally in uh, Florida. Uh, he is the most potent surrogate, as they call him in the United States, that uh, Joe Biden could ever ask for. And you're looking at a guy who's still in his 50s. <laughs> so former president is a man still in his 50s. And he's pitching for the next president who he wants to get in there, who's going to be 78 by um, inauguration day, up against a 74-year-old guy. And you kind of can't help feeling, you know what, why don't we just go back to the young guy? <laughs> you know, <laughs> at least have that option. Well, it's interesting you raise that. I mean, look, this is a, a broader question, I suppose. But does that give you, and does this contest give you pause for thought that maybe the term limits in the US is something that could be adjusted uh, or, or, or have them as an age limit, a bit like what they've got for the, the, the Supreme Court in Australia, not in the US where they stay till they die. But um, does, does it make you think that way? Or, or, or do you think that the power of the office of the US president is such that eight years enough is enough for any one man or woman? So it is what it is. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because politi- there, are, there are politicians who've had such potent brands that they have stayed on an office past their level of competence, mental competence. Um, there is significant evidence that by the late stages of Winston Churchill's reign, which of course went into the mid fifties, um, he was uh, he was struggling. Uh, mm. Woodrow Wilson had a stroke, and for part of his presidency, um, he, he the place was effectively being run by his wife. Uh, FDR, of course, had fundamental health problems. He was dying. He died in office. Uh, Ronald and of Reagan. Course Hugh, and, and of course, he exceeded the term limits. Uh, he's he the did, one president yes. to have done so. Yeah. Because of the, the World War II, you know, particular events of that. But Ronald Reagan was uh, on accounts, even from conservatives, by his final year, uh, showing the early signs of, of dementia. So... Um, you can't say that about Trump. You know, Trump is as Trump was. So whatever there might be about his personality and his cognitive processes, his energy seemed undiminished even after his COVID. But you can't say that really for Biden. You'd have to say that, as, as someone said to me who, who knows him quite well, he has lost some pace. Uh, and he, he probably, anyone would argue that he is coming to where he is now too late in his own race. You know, that mm. probably there would have been earlier times that would have done well, him better. Well, I was just going to say, I remember seeing Biden speak live once and being, and it wasn't that many years ago, but I remember being surprisingly impressed by his warmth and his rhetoric. I, I have to confess, I didn't know an enormous amount about him before he became the vice presidential candidate to Barack Obama, even though he'd had such a long stint uh, in US politics before that. Uh, but I was really impressed and surprised by, as I say, how, how, how good he was and how measured he was and, and how earthy, um, but, you know, relatable he was in style. Uh, but then I look at him now, and as you say, he, he just, to me, 
he certainly seems like he's very different, even just to how he was when I saw him in that speech some years ago. Uh, so clearly you would have to think that age is a factor in that. And if that deterioration has happened over that many years, that fewer number of years, it does make you wonder uh, if the polls are right, if he becomes president, even if he's just a one-term president. Four years is a long time for a man who's 78 already. In an enormously stressful job. And, and you can tell that he's being uh, cotton-wooled in this campaign. He's not doing nearly as many uh, events as Trump is. Trump's doing three major rallies minimum a day uh, as they pursue what remains of the voting public because 66 million plus have already voted. Um, whereas if you look at uh, Trump, his travel schedule, oh, sorry, Biden, his travel schedule, he's doing two events in, in Georgia today, but they're very close together. So he, he'll do one. And they're not the big rallies that don't require that almost kind of stadium-filling energy that, um, that Trump brings to it. So, I mean, the question you raised there is an important one because, and we've talked about this, I think, before, where I, I think a weakness in the whole idea of Biden is that people perceive, even within his own party, perceive that he is a one-termer. And so, therefore, he is essentially a lame duck from the start, the the people start to position, not, not only do Republicans kind of have a crack at him, but the, as they know, as inevitably will, but importantly, Democrats are already looking past him from the day that he gets inaugurated to, to jockey for the position in four years time and perhaps to take positions um, in opposition to Biden because they're trying to uh, differentiate themselves from the crowd so they can have a good crack in, in four years time. And those are sorts of around the edges. You've got to win it first. But, uh, you know, th those are things which will make this presidency really unlike any other, I think, certainly since George Bush Sr. Yeah, and, and, and very interesting, isn't it? Because if they do, like, let's assume that he wins the presidency, if he wins the presidency, depending on how he wins and the fact that he's in Georgia, we might talk about that in a moment, whether that suggests he's surging to victory going into a, a state like that, uh, that he doesn't really need to get his 270 electoral college votes, but he would certainly need Georgia to, to win it in a landslide. But if he does win, we then have the, the spectre of does the, do the Democrats uh, win both houses? And what impact does that have on all the things, Hugh, that you've just talked about in relation to Biden? And then, of course, you've got Kamala Harris as well. And what happens with her vis-a-vis uh, -vis a Biden presidency? Does she become the fait accompli presidential candidate in four years time, assuming Biden doesn't run, assuming he wins the election, uh, or uh, if things go off the rails a little bit in that four years, or indeed if she goes off the rails or is seen as being too radical by some, does somebody else emerge? I mean, it, it's an unusual, as you say, four years, isn't it? Uh, and, you know, it, it, it will be an interesting thing to see before we get past the most interesting, which is the election and the immediate aftermath of the election before uh, whomever gets confirmed as the next president. Yes, the difficulties for the Democrats certainly exist, uh, even if they win, and, and they certainly need to. You make the point about the House and the Senate. Uh, they need, if uh, Biden wins, they need a net gain of three senators to control the Senate. We've seen the importance of controlling the Senate with uh, the nomination, mm. the swift nomination, and then confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to be this new justice of the Supreme Court, something that happened in the last 24 hours. And uh, she then, as people doubtless will have read, uh, brings the Supreme Court to a 6-3 conservative majority. They've seen nothing like that. I'm told by these legal scholars, court, court historians since at least the 1930s to have such a, 
uh, a deeply conservative Supreme Court bench. And there, I mean, she, she will judge, the court will judge on any disputes that might arise out of the election result if it's very close. Uh, they will also look at other issues, you know, the Obamacare on which tens of millions of Americans uh, the poorest Americans depend for health care. The, the Republicans have tried to get rid of it through um, legislative processes, but not succeeded. So they're looking to the courts to knock that out. But the one that uh, is exciting them all, I was outside the Supreme Court last night, is a chance to have a crack at abortion rights within the United States. It is a galvanizing issue, uh, particularly, but not exclusively in, in the Christian heartland belts of the United States, they believe that they will bring up legislation, uh, or legislation will be brought up, sorry, not legislation, legal challenges, legal cases will be brought up uh, during the course of the next few years, which will make in the United States access to uh, terminations uh, illegal, outside uh, constrained medical grounds, and they believe that uh, that because America leads the world in this, uh, it'll be the start of a global uh, push to rein back in abortion rights. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not sure that it'll happen quite as, as they anticipate, uh, even if the court, being more conservative inclined as it is now, does lean their favour with these challenges. Uh, my understanding is that, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, defender of a woman's right to choose and therefore Roe versus Wade. Although I do think that the American experience of the way that this has happened through the court processes rather than through legislative processes is yet another indicator uh, that when you do want social change, it's better to do it through legislatures than it is to do it through courts just quietly, but that's a whole other debate. Um, but my understanding is that depending on how the Supreme Court does go with this, the most likely scenario, even if they look to overturn the idea of Roe versus Wade at that national level is that individual states can still make laws that provide for legal access to terminations under more than just medical grounds. It's just that that's cold comfort, obviously, for women who are living in particular states uh, who would see that reversed, that right reversed. Uh, and of course, we know that Americans are not nearly as mobile as some other countries and cultures when it comes to crossing borders, much less uh, when you're already uh, in the sort of state that, that a woman would be in when making a consideration like that. So there's so many ifs and buts in the mix, but uh, I remain, as, a, as an advocate of a woman's right to choose, I remain an optimist uh, that the, the hopes of the opponents of that right uh, will ultimately be dashed in some form, but we'll see. Yeah, one thing which, which emerged from this, which I hadn't heard before, was the number of young women, uh, African-American women, who one woman made the argument to me last night outside the Supreme Court. They say that African-Americans are 11% of the uh, population. Their 40% of the terminations happen within the African-American community. She said, I haven't been able to fact check that, but it's consistent with stuff I've read elsewhere that it is disproportionately in the African-American community and that um, they see it as genocide and they see it as being due for being outlawed, just as slavery was once uh, considered acceptable, you know, a couple hundred years ago under the laws of the land, uh, this will be seen as essentially a, um, a human rights issue and a race issue, that access to abortion is a racist issue. Now, where all that lands, et cetera, I don't know, but these are arguments I haven't heard before, and it shows that there are uh, constituent parts of these arguments that um, 
the go beyond you know that this the standard impression of it being a sort of if you like deep catholic deep christian versus versus the progressive rest in these in these disputes but back to the election we've got now less than a week to go uh 67 million have already voted so that's just on half of all the people who voted in 2016. so as we see the um the leaders and particularly trump uh go into this final frenzy they're pursuing fewer and fewer voters essentially because the remaining pool gets smaller and smaller and it would seem to me as if it is extremely difficult to imagine donald trump winning from here what's your, what's your feeling from from your distance <laughs> look I, I agree i think this is one of those ones where it's not about you know whether people make accurate or inaccurate predictions as such it's just a simple reading of the data uh, and yes in 2016 the data was wrong uh, I would argue that in our domestic election in 2019, the opinion polls weren't wrong. They were tightening right up till election day. And then I believe they inverted on the day with undecided voters that increasingly flipped in favour of Scott Morrison over Bill Short. And so I would actually defend the opinion polls as having been right up until the point at which they became wrong uh, in that election. And, and in Brexit, opinion polls over there, by the way, uh, despite uh, sort of claims to the contrary, ultimately did show uh, that Brexit was was looking like it may well get up, and indeed it did. So the only outlier when it comes to the polling being profoundly wrong was the 2016 US election. And that, I guess, at one level gives you pause for thought, doesn't it, to be too dependent on the polls this time. But the big however to that is that the polling agencies have done so much to correct the mistakes of last time in their methodology, uh, partly around how they sample size working class Americans versus other cohorts, partly how they do more polling into key states and have less of a read just of national polls in particular. And they're not missing states this time in a way that they did in 2016, where particularly Wisconsin and Michigan, nobody saw coming, even though Pennsylvania was mildly on the radar as the, the three Midwest states that stole the presidency, if you could put it that way, from Hillary Clinton's grasp, even though she had three million more of the popular vote. Now, the reason that all of that is a little bit neither here nor there for me this time is because the polls are twice as powerful for Biden as they were in 2016 for Hillary. And I would argue they're twice as accurate based on sample sizes and methodology and so forth this time. So what does that tell me? That tells me that Donald Trump is careering towards a defeat. If, however, he wins, then I tell you what, even though I'm somebody who's spent a lot of my academic life uh, as well as commentating time reading and interpreting polls and, and, and doing scholarly work on the value and otherwise of quantitative and qualitative research methodology. If the American polls get this presidential contest wrong, then there is something wrong uh, with polling. And, and what, what is that? It doesn't mean it doesn't work in compulsory voting structures like Australia, but those wrongs, if it goes differently than the polls expect in the United States, will be around things like turnout not being able to be accurately uh, understood or people telling pollsters uh, different things to what they do, perhaps because of a growing attitude that the the pollers, the pollsters want to hear one thing, but mainstream Americans might feel another way. And while most Americans don't hide their light under a bushel, perhaps some, when polled, do so when it comes to Donald Trump. So those are the only explainers for me if Trump finds a pathway to victory in the wake of what appears to be overwhelming data-based evidence uh, that he's going to lose, whether it's by a relatively tight margin or by a large margin. 
Yeah, at the moment he's running about three to four percent behind what the final vote was in 2016. So you'd say he he is in trouble. He's he's essentially relying a little bit on the Morrison Shorten thing in that he's running to the line. Shorten, of course, took the pedal off the gas in the last couple of days, really after Bob Hawke died. And uh, there may have been votes captured late there by Scott Morrison. I think there almost certainly were. And Trump saying of Biden, who's doing less campaigning, that he's uh, run up the, the white flag and he's hiding in his basement. Enough of the US. Let's talk Australian uh, domestic politics. Let's take a quick break first, though. This week on 10 Speaks, we have the latest cocktails and roses getting to the very pointy end of the season now. Another episode of So Now What? with Waleed Ali. This one looks at the economy and how we recover after all the lockdowns, etc. Uh, and features Luke McGregor and George Megalogenes. Short Black with Sandra Sully this week features Wendy McCarthy, well-known women's rights activist. And last week we released an episode of Where's William Tyrrell? with Leah talking to criminologist Xanthi Mallet about the latest to come out of the inquest. Of course, you can find all our 10 Speak shows wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Welcome back. This is The Professor and the Hack with Peter Van Onselen and me, Hugh Rimmington. And back to Australian domestic politics. Have we got a National Integrity Commission yet, Peter, while I've been away? Anything I've missed? (laughs) No, no, you haven't missed anything. No National Integrity Commission. We do have a bill from the crossbencher, Helen Hayne. She put a private member's bill into the parliament on the Monday, as she'd committed to doing, and as we talked about on 10 uh, the week before when interviewing her. Um, but that's not going to get the government's support. Uh, it might get some breakaway government MPs uh, if it gets to the point where it gets debated, which I think happens in the parliamentary week, the last parliamentary week in December, if the government hasn't done something by then. But I suspect the government will have put forward uh, its much anticipated and two years in the making and waiting uh, National Integrity Commission uh, proposal by December for the final sitting week of the year. Now, that means it won't be debated then. It won't be enacted this year. It'll be something that'll be looked at in the new year. Um, But they're not in a rush on this. They're still looking to try to find ways to craft it in a way that they're happy with. We, We still hear the Prime Minister talking about Um, the pandemic has taken up too much of his time such that he can't walk and chew gum at the same time and consider other things. He made that point actually freshly back from a week of campaigning up in Queensland for the LNP that he couldn't do two things at once, which I found more than a little ironic. Uh, But the National Integrity Commission, it's still still a really big focal point in Canberra and for the opposition. But um, again, going back to the polls in a different context, uh, people who I know well who do uh, a lot of social research, including for the parties, uh, they tell me that focus groups that they conduct on an ongoing basis shows that there's almost no community interest in this issue at the moment. You know, people are focused on their daily material living needs and worries in the wake of the recession, which we should get to, by the way, the recession, according to the Reserve Bank, may be officially over. Um, But that's what people are worried about at the moment. Now, whether they then worry about post-materialist concerns like a National Integrity Commission, Labor's banking on it, uh, but they're not there yet. So that's interesting. It suggests to me that people, to a certain degree, it goes back to that business where people have such a low opinion of politicians that the half expect them to be corrupt anyway. So these scandals that excite um, you know, us within the belt, I suppose, people to a large degree kind of go, well, you know, that's what it is. That's politics. And, and they, they've already, in a sense, factored that into their thinking. That's anything I can think of at the moment, because the thought that there is such 
uh, obvious misuse of public money, their money, uh, you would think at some stage would break through the surface and, and get people going. But, uh, but you mentioned the recession, uh, the stuff that really matters, it's looking a little better. It is, it is. The Reserve Bank, uh, one of the deputy governors of the Reserve Bank actually, uh, fronting Senate estimates, they're going on this week, Parliament sitting for the lower house, uh, but we're in the second half of two weeks of estimates hearings, which of course is standard practice out the other side of, of a budget week, uh, which is what these parliamentary fortnights are, uh, the first parliamentary sittings post the budget. Uh, in estimates, the Reserve Bank deputy governor made the point that on their mud maps and on their belief of where the economy is currently sitting, uh, they are, um, uh, we're out of recession officially. Now, there's nothing surprising in that. He also made the point, he was very clear to make the point that that doesn't mean we're out of the woods just yet. Economically, it doesn't mean that employment's going to come back or unemployment is going to reduce sufficiently anytime soon. I think he thinks it's going to sit at around the current level over the course of the next two years. But because we took such a nosedive in terms of economic growth as a consequence of the coronavirus, uh, a return to some growth, notwithstanding the problems in Victoria, is to be anticipated because it's, it's the difference between a slowdown in the normal course of events where you have a contraction in the economy, which can sometimes last for more than just the two consecutive quarters, which is the technical definition of a recession. It can sometimes last for four, five, six quarters if it's a very slow period. That's sort of what the Great Depression was in a way. But things have tanked so badly so quickly uh, that even though the economy is still weak and still struggling, there is some growth that comes out the other side of that just by the sheer fact that there was such a shutdown in such a quick period over a lockdown phase. So... It's useful just to be reminded of this process that when you come out of a recession, it doesn't mean to say you're back where you you're back where you started. Uh, you've fallen off a cliff, and essentially it just means that you you you've bought you, you've hit you've hit some sort of a bottom, and there may even be a little bit of growth, but it's growth at a lower level. And in that gap that's left, there is jobs, there are businesses uh, that are going to struggle in a way that they wouldn't have done. So. Uh, coming out of recession does not mean things are back to normal. It just, I suppose, means that um, you're no longer struggling for a, to find the parachute court. Uh, would that be a, a fair metaphor? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty much exactly uh, as, as it sits. And, you know, I mean, I guess the, the good news is that there is some trajectory north when it comes to economic growth. But the bad news is that because the fall was as substantial as it was, even if by world standards we, we didn't see GDP decline to the same extent as a lot of other developed countries. Um, it, it could be a long road to get back to where we were pre-pandemic, even though we're out of recession. Uh, and that is happening at the same time as the government is actually ramping up um, spending and decreasing taxes to try to stimulate growth. So it'll be even longer before we get back to, if you like, this idea of balancing the budget. I think that might be a thing of the past, actually. Uh, it's really interesting to me that the, the debate in economic terms that has dominated recent decades in Australian politics, which I always thought was a false construct, this idea of surpluses are good, deficits are bad, you know, it came out the other side of, of the recession that uh, Hawke and Keating presided over and, and with Howard getting in just in time, uh, to benefit from the mining boom that followed and, and the growth that followed the microeconomic reforms, this became a thing which was then continued thereafter and it became an even easier thing to whack Labor with as a consequence of the GFC. 
it does feel now like that debate is over. You know, there's a realization so? that I I, th I think so. So you think that within the Liberal Party there will not be a uh, a, a, a large weighted cohort that will say it is desirable as a matter of uh, good public policy over time to run budgets in balance that, that there may, you know, everyone knows that disasters can strike, but that that is, remains the sort of the, the signal of good economic management. You don't think that's going to remain a, a, a sort of a, a major weighted cohort? Oh, look, I, th I still think there'll be debates about what constitutes too much spending or, or, or too much or not enough taxing. Um, but I think that it's getting boiled down to we must have get to a surplus to pay down debt. I think that's going to be replaced by what has always been the way economists have understood these things, which is how much uh, debt is too much debt. Are we in a low interest rate environment where debt can actually be a good thing because it's easily serviced in that environment? Uh, are we spending borrowed money uh, on recurrent expenditure where growth is out of control and perhaps needs to be curtailed versus productive expenditure where debt can actually be used to fuel growth? I think that those more subtle uh, and necessary ways of understanding the debate will become the way that it will get fashioned now. Now, look, it won't get sold that way to the average voter. Absolutely not. It's too complicated. They, they, their eyes glaze over. But I just think this sim the simplicity of the debt and deficit argument I think by necessity it has to go away because the next generation of political leaders aren't going to see anything resembling a surplus for the next decade. None of the forward estimates uh, are anywhere near a surplus. The out year of the four-year forward estimates was $67 billion worth of deficits and the 10-year rubbery forecast that if you believe what they say, you believe in fairy tales, even they don't include the pretense of a return to surplus within the decade. So even the Liberal Party that likes to be the party of fiscal conservatism and, and dominate Labor on that score, I think they're going to have to recast how they make their messaging about Labor being bad and them being good. I don't think it'll be through the simplistic prism anymore of surpluses no. are good, deficits are bad. <laughs> it's funny how the rules change, isn't it, uh, when, when events change with them. I have to say, though, from the Australian perspective, uh, from the American perspective of what's happened in Australia, uh, people here are staggered. They 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 go what? Say what? <laughs> when you say uh, when you're talking about COVID death numbers here, because it is a tragic truth that they've just ticked over 226,000 people uh, have died of COVID. There have been um, in the last seven days there have been half a million new infections in seven days. Half a million new infections. And when I say to them, look. Um, I went down to this field of white flags that uh, is in Washington and it is quite awesome. And I mean that in the proper sense of it to walk the amount of time it takes to walk through this field with each white flag representing a life lost. And there's a ticking clock at the other end of it and talking to people who've gone down there to also be sort of struck by the sight of this white field of flags. Some of whom have gone in there and, and with texts and so on, written names of people on there. It's quite a moving instant memorial of our terrible times and getting in conversation with them and and they're saying where are you from etc i say australia and i say look australia has one thirteenth of the population of the united states so if you adjust the numbers to population if australians were dying at the rate of americans we would have a death toll now of approaching seventeen and a half thousand people and 
I don't know because I'm not right across it, but I, I believe we're still under a thousand. Maybe we've ticked over a thousand. I can't can't recall, but it's a fraction of the seventeen and a half thousand. People can't grasp that a country which is broadly speaking similar in its institutions can somehow have come through with such a tiny fraction of the American death toll. And when you see the president of the United States saying again today, I did good. I did good on coronavirus. And he repeats himself. He's now, I thought the first time it was kind of like a, like a tactical error, something he said and then regretted and wouldn't say again. But in fact, he's now woven it into his rallies as he does every day where he repeats COVID, 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 COVID. I tell you, after November the 4th, you'll never hear of it again. <laughs> as if people are talking about COVID to, talk, you know, to make life difficult for him. But in fact, it's not an issue. We know it's not an issue. The minute we've had the election, no one will ever talk about it again. And you're thinking 224,000 uh, people, the, the, the biggest mass uh, loss of life uh, since World War II uh, for the United States. And it's being brushed off here by the president and people are astonished at at what they see around them. So all power to Australia. It's been painful, but, and the death toll of course is not nothing, but uh, bloody hell, we're not America, eh? Oh yeah. And look, you know, it's a mixture of good action by the government uh, and its bureaucrats, uh, a bit of luck on the way through that something like the Ruby princess, for example, didn't actually just create a first wave that put us in the same category as other parts of the world. Um, and also uh, good geography, you know, the same geography that saw us get through the 1918, 1919 pandemic far more successfully than other parts of the world uh, has seen us right this time. Uh, we're an island nation in the deep South uh, and like New Zealand, we've therefore comparatively done well uh, compared to Europe and the United States. Um, but, you know, it's interesting actually, because I've been, I've been, uh, Wayne Errington, my co-author, who we write together uh, frequently about Australian politics, we're doing a book on on Scott Morrison um, for our sins, uh, which we're finalising the draft at the moment, actually, for the publisher. And I was just going through those Where chapters. Where did you get the time for that? Anyway, <laughs> well, well I, done. I, I Congratulations. I, well, it's, yeah, well, I mean, look, don't congratulate me until you read it. But it's... Uh, well, we I'm, get, I'm, <laughs> Scott Morrison won't congratulate me. Won't congratulate you, and he won't congratulate you before he's read it. I think, but um... well, yeah, you can, don't, don't make assumptions, Hugh. You know, I, 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 uh, you don't know that it's negative to Scott Morrison, although it's it's actually begrudgingly positive in parts because it sort of has to be. Uh, but it's also what I find most fascinating about it, uh, going through it, is is how much everything has changed in twelve months. You know, we're coming up on summer, uh, and that's a summer. Uh, where it will be the summer of Scott. I think we're planning to call the title that, uh, which that is obviously a chapter we're going to do late because the book doesn't come out until uh, early next year. Uh, but you compare that to the last summer uh, and the bushfires, you know, he, he's had so many ups and downs, you know, in his political career. He's part of a government that was flailing in leadership turmoil and he was in the midst of it with the conservative commentators going from loving him to hating him for his support for Malcolm Turnbull. Then all of a sudden he takes over as prime minister and he's, a semi-joke in the process, uh, but then he wins an election out of nowhere, then he falls from grace with his mishandling of the bushfires and the Hawaii adventure, then he's right back up again uh, through COVID, where he's now seen as, you know, the leader that's, that, that charted the course that got Australia through this, whatever the conjecture on the edges. So, 
you know, it's, it, it is really interesting to see how, how, how variable things have been. And that the only thing I can say about that is that that would be some consolation for someone like Anthony Albanese, who at the moment looks for all money, like he can't win the next election. Yeah. I think anyone, any political life looked at closely is a story of uh, calamities and near misses and reverses and, and unexpected triumphs, um, you know, good or bad. The, you know, the trick is to last through it all and, uh, and ride it. But, um, you know, if you look at, look, at, look at the greats, the Jeffersons, the, uh, you know, the Churchills, um, they, uh, it's a bumpy ride politics and you may as well not get into it unless you're willing to strap in. To which end? I've got to go to Philadelphia. The whole streets are going uh, up in flames again after another black man was shot by police repeatedly. So I'm uh, going to leave in the next uh, few minutes to go up there and have a look at that as we lead into the election. Uh, take good care of yourself, Peter, and we'll talk soon. Well, more, important, more, more, more importantly, Hugh, you take good care of yourself. You're the one in the midst, uh, in the midst of COVID. Indeed. Uh, we'll talk again next week. See you, man. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.